Excellent. Well, hey, man, it's uh, it's a pleasure talking with you today. Uh, appreciate you coming on. No worries. Hey, right, let me introduce let me introduce you guys. Um, this is my friend Chris Hausnick. Uh, like out of all of my friends, uh, he is uh, a guy who uh, has been reading your book. Loves Van Halen, as you can tell by his background. He has the same mask <laughs> he wear he wears while teaching. <laughs> Uh, but man, uh, you know, Trey told me about you. Shout out to Trey McCool for uh, the introduction. And uh, man, it's it's uh, again, just thank you for coming on and talking with us. You're welcome. It's uh, uh, give you 10 seconds about Trey. I could talk a lot longer, but he's uh, one of these guys who sort of sticks with you and funny memories. And we have a lot of funny memories. You know, I haven't seen him in since the 90s and uh anyway i could <laughs> i could think back on some things that happened in mississippi and just laugh right now great guy so i'm glad to have connected to you through you and uh yeah. Trey, Trey. man he has helped me a lot i've been teaching uh and working on uh, the same campus and for this is my third year full time but man he's really helped me a lot so it's been nice Good having you. him yeah yeah uh so you know housing can i train at the gym together he's a political scientist also so you know get uh Oh, I didn't realize everyone here was an academic. Oh boy, this is gonna like yeah. up the. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna raise my game. Hold on. Oh, oh no! Like, all of a sudden, I gotta like, I gotta like. Hang on. Hey, you want to turn it? I get the wall of books over here. I'll turn I've it. Got, I need a better yeah. background. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, I was telling Brian. I, I did finish your book. Um, I read through Van Halen Rising, and it was one of the things I had to get used to. Was one of your favorite things being written in a in like an academic style, you know? Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting because uh, you know I did a a first book, which was my dissertation, which came out as a book at University of Georgia Press, and like you know, getting from the the, the sort of academic writing style to Van Halen writing Rising style, uh, Rising's writing style was like you know, complete transformation, but I left the footnotes in, you know, I couldn't get rid of everything, so. Oh, yeah. So what was your dissertation on? So uh, my dissertation was on traveling circuses. And so it was on these big shows that would tour uh, the entire country, but particularly I focused on on the South and Georgia. And so when in the summertime, Ringling Brothers and a number of the other huge outfits would mostly come out of the North and come to the South. And I kind of looked at the... Um, the way that people interacted on Circus Day, which was the day that the shows came to town. And then the general, um, the kind of sectional tension that was there for a long time, I shouldn't say for a long time, but definitely during Reconstruction, a little bit afterwards, where it was, you know, these Yankee shows were coming into the South and there was a lot, there was, there was a lot of um, discourse about that in Southern newspapers and things like that. So I looked at that and then how the circus became accepted, not just politically, which faded rather quickly, but more as a religious um, resistance declined as well because evangelicals were were very against the circus but you know by the 20th century that had sort of the circus has sort of slipped as a uh, as a moral threat of the things that become much more uh, seemingly threatening than in the circus but initially yeah the circus was a big in the post uh, post reconstruction south the circus coming was a big deal and it was you know definitely some people really didn't like it hmm. interesting yeah wow fascinating so, hey, so here's a question for you. Uh, I saw uh, just breezing through your stuff, some about us, uh, a bit about the publications. You've written for like Guitar World and Spin uh -huh. Mag. Like, mm -hmm. how and when did you start getting into writing about music? It seems like it, it, it predates even uh, Van Halen Rising. 
Yeah, um, you know, it actually tracks pretty closely with Van Halen Rising. What ended up happening was, uh, you know, I got tenure in 2010 and I took the year with tenure and I had my initial thought was, you know, you sort of climb that mountain to get tenure and it was, it was, you know, the whole, you guys understand the whole deal around that. And uh, I had, a, a, you know, figured like the first 30 days I was going to try to do something just fun and relaxing and just, I wanted to do something on on Van Halen or music or Van Halen. And I was going to do a little, um, what I thought was going to be like a little, maybe a little article from like a, a website or something. And that sort of snowballed into a book. And so I was still doing my, my more mainstream academic stuff really uh, through all that time in terms of, you know, publications, I would do smaller publications, but this thing that I thought was going to be like a fun, small side project just kind of turned itself into a, a book just from me getting interested in the topic and the amount of material that was there. And that's a long-winded way of me saying that I didn't really start doing music writing until really right around the time Van Halen Rising came out. I, I did a little bit of um, stuff related to the book that was put out at the same time, like a couple of magazine articles and things like that related to the to like an excerpt and a couple of other things. And then I did some freelance stuff because um, in 2015 I left I left I left my position because my wife and I were. Uh, working in different cities. I, we were, were living in Tulsa, but we had met in Springfield, Missouri. She had gotten a job at University of Tulsa. And so we had moved to Tulsa. We had kids and I had done this thing where I would go up during the school week, during the school year and teach from Monday to the Thursday, basically. And it just became unworkable once we had twins. So uh, then I sort of transitioned to doing freelance writing, but it was, you know, it was uh, something that was not exactly a, a game plan that I had sort of laid out. It was just sort of circumstances. We had children and it just became, it just became impossible. And uh, um, yeah, that's what ended up happening. Somebody kind of had to be default and be home with kids. And that's what ended up happening. So it just worked out that I, I left and uh, yeah, did music writing full time, but it was not like I had some sort of master plan to do this. Yeah. So you're in Tulsa now. Uh, yep. We live in Tulsa full, full uh, decade. We've been here. Yep. Man, that's just right up the road. I can't tell you how many times we've been to Tulsa. Chris has competed jiu-jitsu in Tulsa. I've competed jiu-jitsu in Tulsa. I feel this like all I've ends. Been there. Come, call yeah. me. Yeah, we, yeah. Uh, we'll get together. Me and two friends, we saw uh, Van Halen in Tulsa six years ago. Sure. I think when they came through on the last big tour. Yeah, I go down to the BOK, BOK quite frequently to see shows. In fact, uh, I had tickets to see Kiss and David Lee Roth, and that afternoon at one thirty, they canceled that show. And so, uh, as I joke on Twitter a lot of times, like the last the show I saw in an arena before that was Paw Patrol. So, if that's the last arena show I ever see on planet Earth, it's going to be a sad testament to my <laughs> my musical my musical end. Uh, I assume that won't happen, but uh, yeah, that's still the last I saw. The, we went with the kids, and then um, yeah. Yeah, I saw, man, I saw Roger Waters at the BOK. Yeah, it was an amazing show. We built the whole wall. Yeah, that was that was pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, what you've written three total books? Yeah, I guess you had had a, a recent book come out too. Is, did I see that? Like this year? Right. So I did. Um, I did the uh, the circus book came out in 2008 then i did the van halen rising book came out in 2015 and then uh just yeah the earlier this year in april i published uh ted templeman a platinum producer's life in music and that's ted templeman who produced the van halen records and the doobie brothers and little feet and carly simon and all these other huge acts um i did his authorized biography so i worked with him on his auto on his autobiography um 
pretty much starting in 2016. It kind of it started uh, then, and then he, uh, yeah, he. So basically, I started pitching the idea to him to 2016 early on and saying, hey, do you want to do this? And he was sort of, at the, at the beginnings, he was sort of um, lukewarm about it because he's not a guy who ever wanted to, wanted to write a book. But um, yeah, and we uh, kind of came up with a plan and he, he got interested and we uh, worked on it. And uh, yeah, it came out just a few months ago. So uh, basically, right around the time the, the, uh, you know, the COVID really hit, the lockdown started and all that stuff, which is sort of a mixed, had a, sort of mixed results with the book. But yeah, that's when it happened. It came out in April. Yeah, are you so that's kind of cool little spin-off project of the Van Halen book. I mean, yeah. So I got to know Ted during doing by doing the Van Halen Rising book. I got to know him. Uh interviewed him and uh it's funny the book. I don't remember if there was an advanced copy of the book out or something and I got this email from Ted Templeman. You know, I hadn't talked to him in about a year and a half. I did this interview with him and we might send him a thank you email but I hadn't talked to him. And it was like Van Halen Rising. And I was like, oh, you know, you're sort of like, first you're like, oh, I got an email from Ted Temple. And you're like, oh, I got an email from Ted Temple. And I hope he didn't like, whatever. I mean, I didn't know, like maybe he was like, heard something, I irked about it, but he had, had seen a copy of the book or read the book and really was um, really, really complimentary of it. So that's what sort of happened. He liked the, the Van Halen Rising book. And then uh, we did a, we did a, actually a book event together in Pasadena. So Van Halen's from Pasadena and I went out there and launched the book there at a bookstore in Pasadena, California, an indie bookstore called Romans and did a book signing and I invited Ted and uh, he agreed to come out for it and sign books. So that was amazing for me, a huge, just a huge, uh, wonderful event to have this guy who had, you know, a uh, Grammy winner and had done all these amazing records and he, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. So we kind of struck up a little bit of a friendship and took it from there and so yeah did his life story which was a uh, which was a fun and uh definitely a uh, different kind of experience when you're de dealing with a living person it's a, you know it's you know obviously all the guys in van halen are living but i wasn't an authorized book and so i you know i wasn't having someone basically going i don't like this passage or i like this passage or do more of this less of this you know it was an editor or stuff but you didn't have the, the subject of the book reading it and going um you know whatever yeah, interesting. You, do you have anything else planned in this uh, this same wheelhouse of this uh, this topic? I, I have all sorts of book ideas, but uh, I you know I think you guys kind of understand if you have children what you know. I you're, don't. Your daily, well, it's, it, yeah, you're, yeah, it's just yeah. Uh, the daily agenda of not having the school open, and uh, <laughs> you know, it was uh, you know, I, we took the kids to school, we dropped them off, I came home, I did whatever I had to do for the house, and I wrote, and then we picked up. I picked up the kids and then, you know, away we went. And so that, you know, and I wrote in that, obviously in that time period when the, they were not in the house, but guess what? They never leave the house. So there's a different deal. So, yeah. so uh, yeah, I, I definitely have some other book ideas. Uh, I haven't really um, even tried to get rolling on them because it's just been, I find trying to get focus time to work is, is challenging. And by eight o'clock at night, I'm usually done which coincides with the time that they go to bed so i'm like yeah i'm like i'm done i'm i'm brain dead so uh, but yeah i mean it's obviously this stuff will all come to an end that's a serious uh, more serious point i'm you know i'm uh i definitely have another van halen book in me but you know i, I have other other ideas too and so it's it's a matter of trying to um also try to get the time to sort of <laughs> just you guys know it's been a crazy year to kind of sit back and kind of reflect on what to do next. It's even that has been sort of a difficult, a difficult thing for me to get in that headspace for. So, 
Yeah, it is. It's been a, it's been a heck of a year. I keep, I, I was like, you know, on the silver linings and it still am. I mean, it's getting better all the time, I guess. Uh, you know, I own a business here in Russellville, Martial Arts Academy. We, ha- yeah. we like just moved to a gigantic new location. And then two weeks later, COVID hit. We had to close. Sorry, <laughs> but, it, man, honestly, we're, we're doing better than ever. We have more members than ever. It's a, That's it, great. It's a, it's a weird time, but there's, you know, it, it's just the uncertainty of uh, – it seems like to be a more uncertain time than anything else. Yeah, I mean, but, it's it's interesting because it's, there are these unusual silver linings, so you guys might appreciate this too. So when the book came out, you know, Amazon had it in stock, and the, the press printed it enough – printed – I don't know how many books they printed initially, but there were plenty of books. They, they had sent them to Amazon. And then when the book came out, the day like everyone had pre-ordered, they said, it's not available. We, you know, we'll let you know when it's available to ship. Long story short, what Amazon decided to do, probably a lot of people was, and like, unless it's like, you know, maybe like the top 100 books or top 500 books, all the other books, from what I understand, they basically said, okay, look, if you're, you know, if uh, you guys are ordering toilet paper, if Chris is ordering toilet paper and yeah. some other goods, we'll throw the book in the box. But if Chris is just ordering the book, he's going to have to wait. And so, you know, that was a like, you know, I don't even know how that ended up washing out, but I know a lot of people got frustrated waiting for the book and just ordered the audio book or ordered the Kindle. And so it's like, you know, in the big scheme of things, it's like, I don't know how it all ended up um, for, uh, for the book sales. I mean, because there's no really way to know, like actually like, I would never, I don't have access to the information to go like, oh, well, 300 people canceled their order or what we projected was this and went there. But, you know, that was the one thing I know happened for sure is a lot more people did the ebook and they did the, uh, the audio book because that was obviously instant delivery. But, but yeah, the whole, you can, like you said, like you closed, it's like, you know, you're like, all right, the book's in a ship. And then it's like, people are like emailing and go, I pre-ordered the book in, you know, in, in uh, November last year when it came on Amazon and it says it's not available. And I call the press and they're like, they have the books, they're in the warehouse. They just you know, whatever, they were going through their stuff with COVID. But I think I think probably what they were doing to try to deal with being overwhelmed at that time, they just decided to ship things that were non, not ship, quote unquote, non-essentials, like CDs and things like that probably yeah. weren't shipping. But the they were, pub- you know, yeah. The publishing industry got hit hard by COVID. I backed a Kickstarter for a book. It was supposed to ship, you know, be done and printed by April. Right. It arrived Tuesday. Wow, that's cr- that's crazy. But I it's mean, just that's because, crazy. yeah, non-essential printing and publishing and binding and all that right. kind of stuff. Right. Um, I was going to ask you, um, how many face-to-face interviews did you do, like on the ground in California? Because it seemed like you interviewed a lot of like, I mean, not like you know, people and things of that nature, um, who were big into that scene in the really early seventies. So I, I probably did less than 10 in-person interviews in California. Almost all of them I did over the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there was um, some email stuff I did with people occasionally just for email, but most of it was done over the phone. I mean, you know, I lived in Oklahoma. It was like, you know, it was kind of an interesting experience because at first, you know, when you're trying to do a book like this, nobody knows who you are. I'm not some big name they're like oh like bob woodward's calling of course i'll take the callers you know like i'm like a, you know just some guy who's got a phd and they there that even makes you suspect in the eyes of a lot of people and uh, as you know and uh you know but after a while it was you know i, I would talk to people on the phone because i talked to so many people who were from the pasadena area all these these people and, and people were like what high school did you go to 
And I'd be like, Sparta. They're like, Sparta, what's that? I'm like, it's in New Jersey. They're like, oh, you didn't grow up here? You know, because it was just like, they like had kind of lost track, you know, a couple of times people had lost track of who introduced you to who and they're like, well, you know, so, um, but you know, for me, it was actually, you know, a good way to work. I could, I could call people um, pretty late at night here, whatever, in California. And I talked to them. And when I get off the phone, get ready to get off the phone, those, them I say, who else should I talk to? Who else should I talk to? And they say, hey, you know, you really should call my friend Chris. You know, he uh, had a backyard party and it was a Van Halen backyard party. Or, hey, you know what? You should call, you should call this guy Brian. He had a club in the Valley and they hired a lot of bands. I think Van Halen played there and you call Brian and, you know, sometimes they were dead ends, but a lot of times they weren't. And you talk to people and kind of get passed along. Um, you know, so I was out there, I was out there a couple of times and uh, I did, uh, I did talk to some, some folks face to face who were, who were um, accessible. But a lot of times it was like, you know, some of these people live, like live in, or they moved to Oregon or something like that. It was just a matter of like, you know, they they don't live in Oklahoma, excuse me. They don't live in um, California anymore. They lived in Oregon. See, uh, that for Brian, there's a lot of what I really appreciated about the book was it covered a lot of the history that I like the, the prehistory. Like, every, I, everybody kind of jumps on the wagon at 78, 79, I, but these guys were grinding in like 73, 74, um, going to like literally playing these backyard parties. You know, it's just, you know, it's very dazed and confused. I think you mentioned it. Um, totally. But it's like, imagine you having a backyard party, Brian, in about 76, and there's like a thousand people in the backyard party, a police helicopter flies over, um, and those kind of events is what kind of helped get them on the radar um, eventually. But I think that was a lot of what I really um, enjoyed reading about. Um, the uh, The thing is about the about that stuff that's interesting is those parties is that that was always sort of like Van Halen folklore. And uh, you'd read interviews in different music magazines in the eighties and you'd see a couple of sentences mentioned about backyard parties and things like that. And, you know, to sort of spend time talking to people who threw these parties or went to these parties. And I ended up talking to some, in some cases, you know, two or three dozen people who would go to one of these parties because they were huge. And, you know, then you would, you would do a search in the Pasadena newspaper and I would see these little tiny articles. You guys are, you guys are just, oh, you open, and it's like, you know, the fourth page of the paper, it's the bottom of the fold. And it says like police break up teen party. And you would read it like, you know, it never mentioned Van Halen because they weren't famous. It's 1975 or 74, but it would be like police broke up, a, you know, a rowdy backyard party with loud, loud bands and noise violation and stuff, you know, and, it's, and you were like, oh my gosh, it, it tracks with the flyer. And it's like, it's, you know, 500 people there, rocks and bottles were thrown the police blah 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 whatever it's like you're like wow he's, he's like it, it it tracks with the with the stories and it was really um interesting to see like you said about that sort of getting a reputation and they they, they became um known in los angeles in part for that stuff before they ever be, ever played really played nightclubs formerly where they actually played in hollywood and stuff like that where they were um kind of uh, on marquees that mattered that was years before that happened I think the other two uh, things that I appreciated, I think Brian would, those guys were grinders. Um, when you're trying to describe what their days were like, um, they were playing, what's the name of the club? I don't want to mispronounce it with a G. Um, where they became uh, the Gazaris. Gazaris. These guys would go, they would practice three or four hours, then go play five one-hour sets at Gazaris and repeat 
four, five, six nights, uh, six nights a week sometimes. Um, they're barely, you know, they're making enough to cut, maybe cover guitar strings and stuff like that. But it's like they really, I don't think it was that long ago. I think David Lee Roth was quoted, um, you know, everybody talks about 10,000 hours to become an, an expert. Yep. And he said he they grinded out that 10,000 hours before they ever had a record deal. Definitely. I mean, I think one of the more inspiring things about the Van Halen story is, you know, beyond the immigrant aspect, which is really interesting because the brothers came to America in 1962, didn't speak any English, they came from Holland. And so they were first generation Americans. And then if you think about just the amount of, of hard work that they put in, it's true, they were, they were working for, for basically no, no money uh, playing a lot of these clubs where they play and they they uh, talk about how uh, at the end of the set of Gazzari's, Bill Gazzari was kind of this notorious tightwad. But if he had a good night and he sold a lot of drinks, he would go up to David Lee Roth and have like a $10 bill or a $20 bill and he'd stick it in, in Roth's pocket of his shirt or like his like, you know, he'd be like, good set tonight, Van. See you again tomorrow night. He actually thought David Lee Roth's first name was <laughs> He thought his first name was Van. He thought, like, you know, like Van Morrison or something. So it was like, you know, uh, Van Heusen or something like that. So that you know, they talked about how they would, you know, they were, um, they were, uh, yeah, just doing this to do it. And the other story I heard from somebody who um, actually hauled gear for those guys, like Roadies, a Roadie, when they were still um, in Los Angeles, where they had a record deal. And at some point, one of the guys said to him, "Hey, you know, hey man, you know, like, what if you guys, what if you don't make it?" And they were like, "What do you mean?" Like, you know, a lot, you know, you have to have that sort of belief that's beyond rationality sometimes with any, you know, any um, person who really makes it, you can look at someone like an NFL player or something like that, where you're sort of, you know, maybe like a end of the roster guy, you just, you know, but you stick around It's sort of that, you know, what are you going to do when you don't make the team? You're like, what do you mean? I'm not going to make the team. Um, But those guys worked incredibly hard and we're just, that was the only that was the only plan. I mean, that was the thing like Eddie Van Halen says, like I would have worked in, I probably would have given, you know, in effect would have said I would have given music lessons and worked in a gas station if I didn't make it in music or playing, just kept playing nightclubs forever. You know, I would just been playing for no money in nightclubs if we never got famous because they were, that's all they knew. They were musicians. Yeah. And I think part of that, um, you hint at it comes from their, like their father, their, his upbringing. And, you know, I have a, a friend of mine's a music professor here and it's always, you're playing in big bands. It's for chair. First chair, right. second chair, third right. chair. So, you know, dad's like always on them. You know, you got to be practicing. And now they probably took it to obsessive compulsive levels. But I think that definitely was passed down into them. And you see it when they're putting in that much work. Yeah, the uh, the musical aspect of the family was super, obviously the father being a, a jazz musician. And that's another interesting part of the story too, is that Jan Van Halen was a clarinet player and a sax player who, you know, I was, was moderately successful in Holland. And that doesn't, I don't mean, you know, I mean, he wasn't like some sort of like household name, but he was a guy who would play in orchestras that were on TV and had like, I had a good career as a musician. And, but when they came to the States, you know, big band music was kind of like a jazz was sort of dead uh, in terms of like um, trying to get gigs and nightclubs. And so he ended up playing at like, you know, uh, Polish American unity halls and stuff like that. In other words, he went from basically being a fair, you know, a guy who was had bands that would work in part of orchestras to somebody who couldn't really get gigs that would, would pay any money. And actually he used to work as a maintenance man and things like that. And so gr- growing up the boys, 
you know, he, when he was, when the boys were growing up, he, I think really focused on that as, as, um, become a professional musician, but maybe do it a little differently than I did because actually, and this is kind of well known is that they wanted, the parents wanted them to be concert pianists. And they, so they took these lessons from this very, very well-regarded, um, uh, Russian, if I remember correctly, Russian piano, uh, instructor who was, was, a quite a, quite a, a big name. And, Alex Van Halen tells the story about even even at some point the family finally said I don't remember the, the whole context but they basically they couldn't afford the lessons anymore and basically like look we, I'm sorry we can't we can't afford the lessons anymore and he actually kept teaching them for free so because he thought the boys had talent so that was the whole thing and then when the boys went to rock and roll that caused a lot of angst in the family but you know I think it's one of those things you couldn't quite couldn't quite stop it you know it was kind of built into the into the um the brothers, they really loved that type of music. And I'm sure the, fa the father saw that and kind of, and they shifted gears and quit the piano lessons. That's interesting too, because, you know, I've, I've met at least one guy personally uh, that migrated from Holland that was like one of the most shredding guitar players I ever personally got to be around. Now I'm sitting back wondering what the musical culture of Holland's like. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, other thing too that you'd be interested in is the whole, um, you know, Brian is the whole martial arts aspect. Is that Roth oh, yeah. got into martial arts? You know, even early on, he was. I, I would talk to people when I did the book, and it kind of, kind of was irrelevant for the, the for the story of the Van Halen story. But he was, you know, he was into martial arts when he was in high school. He was doing it. Um, I can't remember the the, the uh, where he trained, but it was a place that was a a well known. Uh, I want to say Parker. Does that sound right? But I can't remember the, the discipline. I have to look up. I think the guy's last name was Parker, who was the the head of it. But it was, um, you know, it became part of his his repertoire of stuff. And of course, later on, of course, you know, in the videos, he did all the karate kicks and all that other stuff. But that was uh, another part of the, you know, that sort of fist that that physical training that they did. The brothers were obsessed with music, and Roth was sort of obsessed with making himself into like the ultimate rock star. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, was it enough to just to be able to like sing or whatever else? He had to learn to dance, and then did all all the other martial arts stuff that was. You know, when he did the arena shows, that really became kind of a, a centerpiece for him, especially by the 80s. Hey, Chris, who is it with, uh, isn't it like Def Leppard's front man that is into Thai boxing and... No, it's their guitar player. Guitar that, player. Um, Phil Colleen. Um, you remember Behind the Music? Oh, yeah. A yeah. lot of those guys, I think the entire, I grew up in the arena rock era, and a lot of those guys have fought addiction in various ways. Um, Alice Cooper picked up golf. Right. Um, Phil, Phil Colleen basically picked up um, uh, Muay Thai in the mid to late 80s. I mean, I think he he's the guy. Basically, Google a picture of Def Leppard, the whole band. I don't think he ever wears a shirt, you know. And, yes. if, if, I were, <laughs> and if I were 62 or 63 and then rip, I'm not sure I'd wear a shirt either. You know? Yeah, he um, – yeah, he uh... – and has some interesting like workout videos too. He's like vegan. And he's like really, yeah. He's like super, super fit. It's kind of, it's kind of insane. Yeah, he's a, uh, mm -hmm. he's definitely a, uh, a freak of, uh, of nature in that sort of way. He does not, yeah, he does not look his age at all. It's incredible. Yeah, man. There's a lot of great uh, kickboxers that come from Holland too. There's a big, like Muay Thai culture there. Everybody calls it Dutch style kickboxing. Interesting. Yeah, that's oh, I'm fascinated by it too because they focus more on like like sort of you get to say traditional or Western boxing principles, but then they also kick you in the leg really hard, which you don't get in like your traditional styles a lot of the time. So like it's a it's a, a world renowned 
uh, way of looking at fighting. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Dutch style. So hey, I got a, I got a couple of questions for you, man. Like uh, one here. thing I was I was talking to Trey about about why I wanted to sit down and talk with you is because, man, long term I am interested in to get I, I have yet to got uh, to get a publication since I've been uh, out of college working. I'm working on some articles and, and just small scale stuff, um, but. I am a super fan of the band Widespread Panic, and if I was going and if I was going to write any his, and I'm very interested. Like I remember, I was sitting there right when I was about to start teaching full time, and I was watch. I was about to watch him play. I've seen him play uh, about 25 times, and I was like, I would love to write the history of this band in, in different parts because it's such a rich, a rich history that ties to so many other things. But really. Like I run into this, so like I wrote my master's thesis about martial arts, and I end up sorting through a lot of stuff that is written by uh, practitioners and not not historians. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, what kind of tips do you have for just not just me and widespread panic, but like about just like writing history of music? You know, like if you're dealing with a band or if you're if you're dealing like like what are some things you learn from? from your Van Halen publication that you think you could pass on? Well, I think the most important things I would pass on is that people care about, I say people meaning like a a broad reading audience care about stories, you know, and that's as I'll just speak for myself as an academic historian, you're not really trained to do that. You're trained to analyze minutia and to sort of focus deeply on one's small segment of life, whatever that is, whether it's culture, whether it's a political thing, or it's a, uh, an artifact. And you sort of realize it's, it'd be like, for me, if I approached it that way, it'd be like me writing about Eddie Van Halen's guitar strings. Like it might be a super important topic and like, I might really care and maybe 50 other guitar players care, but it's sort of like, it gets, it gets like, you'd be like, this is, this is important. Maybe it is super important that Eddie Van Halen's tone, the way he played like maybe that explains a lot about Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing, but for most people, they can't connect with that. They're like, I don't, I don't, they don't play guitar. They don't, they don't get it. And so, you know, for me, the, the number one thing would be, would be trying to capture the story of the topic. So for widespread panic, I mean, if you think about those behind the music episodes, they had a narrative that was incredibly predictable. They were almost all the episodes were the same. If you think about it, it's like, you know, the rise, the trouble, the fall, the bad stuff and then the re you know then at the end there was like the happy music started and everyone was great like you're like oh yeah my arm fell off from heroin but i grew it back and now i'm getting back together but the guys are going to re-record a new album or something you know it's just so um the story i think the story for for that is what what matters and again look there's plenty of people who write different types of music books um who can approach topics in a different way but that's for me like especially with bands i think that's the um or musical figures people care about that and the other thing i would say is that for me, where a lot of music books fall down is that there isn't enough research done. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying in general, if anyone picks up your book, you anyone's book and reads it and goes, I knew 90% of this, people feel disappointed. They're like, I knew 75% of this. And so, you know, that was the thing about Van Halen Rising was for me, I was like, well, there's been some other Van Halen books written. 
that covered their sort of fame years. And maybe I could do a better job. Maybe I could, maybe I could, who knows. But I thought when I started looking at the topic and realized there was all, all this stuff, meaning there were all these years from 1970 or so where the guys first started playing together, the brothers really started playing out for people. They meet David Lee Roth in 73. They don't even get a record deal until 76, 70, 77. And they don't even make a record till late 77 and they don't become stars till 78. So the, all this stuff that people didn't know. So, so that's, I love hearing that from Chris going, Hey, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know when I read the book. It was really cool because I didn't know that. So for me, that's the other thing is that, you know, you can, you can put together, anyone can put together a book that people will read and go, ah, it was, you know, it was pretty good. But if, again, if, if people are turning pages, every single page, they're like, I knew that I knew that I knew that they're going to go, well, like, what's what's the thing and so what's the point and that goes for any you know anything if you're writing a book about um the u.s forest service and forest fires and it's basically like a you know basically like a blow up of the wikipedia page it's sort of like people are like well what's the point of that so you know that's where i would say focus on the stories that people can connect with you know the, the uh the struggle to make it the struggles with record companies the the tension i think people uh, kind of understand that most most bands have like pretty heavy tension inside them even super successful bands there's always you know something that doesn't you know always work in terms of of relationships and you know so that that's what i would say and so i said you know if you're going to write a book about widespread panic i would want i i don't know anything about widespread panic and i know a couple of their songs i would say i want to know how they formed how they got their record deal what scene they came out of what were the personalities like in the band? Who drove, you know, who was the leader? Who were the other guys in the band? What were the, what was the sort of the tension there in the band? If they, did they split up ever, you know, that type of type of stuff and then the wider, the wider scene. Um, you know, because I think as people, anytime you hear a great song that matters to you personally, any, meaning anybody, if you're like, you know, if you, um, if you love Led Zeppelin, you know, and you're, and you're, and you're re, uh, you'll hear, um, you know, Stairway to Heaven, you, you know, you might be interested to know like, hey, you know, what was what was the band doing when they wrote the song and what what, was the, what were the lyrics about and kind of get, getting deeper beyond sort of like the song meeting, you know, the sort of the context that it came out of. So that's the type of stuff I think that would make for a, a good, good rock read um, to, to connect with, to connect with people. Is that what you were doing on some like your early articles that just grew into the project? Is this kind of riffing on some of these topics? Yeah, well, the first, well, the first thing I was going to write about, I was actually going to write about, um, this is kind of funny. It was that it was a uh, <laughs> time I was thinking I might have to write this under a pseudonym too, because I, but, but in the, in Van Halen rising, I talk about the fact that, and this, you know, this was, this was also something that, you know, there's, it was a little bit hard to separate myth from reality, but it, it did, it did happen that, Van Halen was playing in a club in Van Nuys, California, where the owner, because the club was struggling financially, decided to hold wet t-shirt contests in between sets. And, uh, you know, it was 1976 and it was a bike, it was a biker bar. So you could imagine there were a lot of women there who were sort of semi-game to do this. And, uh, but the police came in and raided it. And that, that was the initial, like that type of, I was like, wow. I was like, that's kind of, that's kind of crazy. Like, you know, and, um, that was the type of thing that I thought maybe I'd write this little, like, again, maybe under a pseudonym, this little article at Van Halen News Desk about this, just to kind of talk about this interesting little, um, this little moment in, in history, how these guys um, were involved with this bust, the Van Halen guys, and it, it became sort of part of their, their larger than life reputation, even before they became famous. And so, yeah, that was the type of stuff that I sort of thought, oh, that was kind of interesting. 
to say the least. And uh, yeah, that was, you know, I kept hearing things that were like that. And I was like, oh, this is like, <laughs> this is pretty good, some pretty good stories. You know, there's pretty crazy. So. Man, and that's like, you kind of hit on this a minute ago, but that's uh, like some, some of my mentors have given me the same tips about, particularly with my master's thesis, they're like, yes, you better find something that hasn't been done before. Right. Like, you know, go write about something that there's not, there's, you, if you can be the first guy and if you're going to write about something that's already been written about, you better put a, a whole new spin on it, add something else. And, um, man, that's a really good approach. I mean, this kind of common sense or, well, I mean, now, but for history writing, I mean, that's a, a method and approach I've, I've heard of multiple times. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the other thing too is like, there are sometimes there are books that come out that people I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, but there'd be things that people, you know, didn't know anything about and the topic before and it's sort of you're like, wow, that was amazing. Like this whole episode that was totally forgotten in history and suddenly it becomes important. And there are other books where like, you know, the one I did, which in some ways was, was um, an easier sell. You already, you have something that people know about, but you're saying, okay, you don't know the full, the full story. So, you know, there can be, um, you know, probably look up on my shelf and find a book like that where there's books that come out and like, you know, like, Oh, this, this, I didn't know anything about this flood in this part of the United States in the 1910s that really no one's talked about, but it's like reshaped the flow of the river. And it's like, you know, this, thing you don't really know about really, really impacted um, life in America today or something like, you know, with, like obviously with Van Halen, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of obviously a recognizability uh, makes it in some ways an easier, an easier sell in some sort of ways. But again, you know, it's like, I think, I think the thing is, especially with Amazon reviews and these types of things, like people find out pretty quickly if it's like, you didn't, anyone didn't, you didn't deliver something that's interesting or compelling, you know, sort of like, eh. You know, it's a book about the Patriots Super Bowl. I hate the Patriots, by the way, but it's the Patriots Super Bowl dynasty, but it's all stuff that I already knew, and it's really not that great. So, you know, because I'm, I'm a Jets fan, so I'm like, I'm extremely, extremely traumatized by the last decade of football, so. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you, It's like, oh, yeah. You have to say anything else. You're like, shit, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to ask you. Uh, sure. You hit on this already, but like the editing down to that core story, I'd be interested because, you know, that was the thing. There was a lot of, I could see, you know, your theme is this story of this band going from, you know, four random guys in Southern California to how big they were. But you, know, you bring in like, there's really interesting mentions of like the classes, like David Lee Roth and the Van Halen brothers were in wildly different socioeconomic situations. Um, you bring in race a little bit, um, you know, Dave Roth, I guess, at that point, you know. Um, flamboyant, was, classic flamboyant Jewish guy who loved uh, loved funk music. I mean, it's like crazy, yeah. right? He's like, it's like, but sure. it's like you couldn't write it any better. It's like, wow, you know, it's amazing. Well, it was amazing, yeah. I will say thank you for Google because I had to look up Black Oak, Arkansas. Oh, to did, find did out. You, yes. Did you see? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. it's undeniable. Yeah, there's a little bit of a uh, wardrobe license. Yeah, Jim Dandy. Um, you know, I, I know it's even more interesting is that if you guys look up Black Oak, Black Oak, Arkansas was from Black Oak, and there was actually a compound that they had. The band pooled their money. It's a whole story. Um, 
and the compound is still there. I think it's like a it's like a fishing cabin retreat, but it's like this whole interesting saga. And speaking of bands, like you know, that was one of the things where I actually was interested in writing about Black Oak. But you know, it's just it would be um, it'd be a pretty niche thing. But they have a check out Black check out um, YouTube if you look up a Black Oak Arkansas. Look about their compound. It's amazing. Like they have this like on one of the huge lakes there in Arkansas. They had a uh, this whole, they basically, yeah, had this, they, rec, you know, they basically, oh, we're going to live together and kind of live here. Um, yeah, sorry, I got sidetracked. Oh, how, how is, how is Black Oak connected to Van Allen, exactly? <laughs> I'm laughing because if you go, if you put if the, you know what, I'll, I'll, Chris, you tell them. I'm laughing. Well, the way I, yeah, the way I read it, basically, David Lee Roth was the one who mm. recognized we need to look like rock stars. We can't just show up in jeans or whatever. Right. And the appearance he took was the lead singer, um, like Jim Dandy was his name, and the band was called Black Oak, Arkansas. And it's still, it's like bell bottoms, platforms, like low rise bell bottoms. And, right open shirts and stuff like that yeah long blonde hair yeah hairy chest so they were kind of like a southern like a more a more hickey leonard skinner i know that sounds impossible but like if you they were like they they, they played up the southernness to the point of like it definitely was like part of it was like tongue-in-cheek like they had a woman who would come on stage and her name was ruby um she was quite a good great singer and they would be like let's bring on stage our kissing cousin ruby and like ruby would come oh on and she's like you know, and she's um but they were super popular and had um you know uh a, a good string of uh hit album i should hit albums they had a couple of hit albums in like 73 74 and they played all the big festivals but um yeah if you see any of their videos on youtube like it's pretty obvious you're like oh yeah they were off definitely like definitely <laughs> borrowed some of that stuff yeah i mean it's just like yeah it's like but it, it was uh it was definitely you're dead dead right i mean that was one of the the great things about this sort of class and and um issue was that not only was roth cut from a different cloth culturally than those other guys his father became wealthier and wealthier in the course of time where he was in middle school and high school where he became a super successful ophthalmologist who was like was extremely talented and was you know, kind of the best in the city. So he charged a lot of money for these surgeries. And I don't mean that to cast aspersions on the guy. I mean, the guy was talented and he was, he was the best. And he, he ended up um, buying Roth's father, a, quite a huge, huge house in Pasadena, a mansion really. And that's where Van Halen practiced in the basement of this mansion. And so Roth lives there now, his father's passed on and he bought the house from his father and uh, lives there now. But um, yeah, I mean, the brothers grew up in living in a, like a two bedroom two bedroom house and Eddie slept on a converted um, sleeping porch on the, on the back. I mean, the, the, you know, the family wasn't like destitute. I don't make that sound, but they grew up in, as you'd imagine, like post-World War II GI Bill, small house in Pasadena, in a very, very modest. And then they pair up with Roth. <laughs> His yeah. father's like, he's got like a 25 room mansion. You know, it's, it's so there was all these different and his musical tastes were really different than the brothers. The brothers like Black Sabbath and Roth really liked you know, he liked a lot of different types of music, but if you were to probably nail it down, what he liked, he liked Cool and the Gang more than he liked Black Sabbath. I mean, that's the truth. And yeah. so, you know, they had places where they kind of met in the middle, but Roth liked pop music and funk music and um, R&B, 70s R&B stuff and Motown stuff where the brothers were not really interested in that. And that's kind of where you got the Van Halen sound from these different 
influences coming together is the one one thing. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, Black Oak, Arkansas. Yeah, you got you guys got. Like, I mean, I'll I'll see. I'll find it. Like it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And that's uh, like when you yeah. see it when you when you watch you just you're like oh yeah it's just like yeah it's undeniable. I'm sure you have, but you ever you ever get into the band? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Levon, Levon Helms from Arkansas as yeah. well. And the rest of the guys are from Canada, right? A lot of them are from Canada. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, man, I was just in an office with Trey and two other guys today. A guy across the hall from us who's going to come on the podcast here in a couple of weeks uh, is a super big fan of the band. I was always talking about Levon Helms, telling a song, like, this is what the, there is, a, there is Chester. He's buried over here. Right. So, anyway, yeah. yeah. Cripple Creek. Yeah. Oh, that's a classic. Man, The Last Waltz is uh is such an awesome album. So but uh well man, uh I got one one other thing. Like you, you got any uh you got any tips just for like a young historian, this thirty three year old dude who just started teaching a couple years ago, just starting out. That would be myself. <laughs> uh in terms of teaching? Well, I mean, man, teaching, uh, you know, uh, but really, man, like I do, uh, I do have writing goals. I have, I've had several authors on the podcast of just like different people have written books, are writing, are writers, a few historians. And man, just like I'm always asking for tips on like, hey, like, how do you, you know, how do you budget your writing time? Do you do, do, you, know, do, you do a word quota? Sure. Uh, but like lecturing too, I mean, in the classroom, out of the classroom, our institution doesn't focus a lot on research, but like I have, I have goals sure. connected to that. Sure. So. Well, uh, protect your time in the summer as best as you can. I mean, that was what I, I definitely, I mean, I wrote Van Halen Rising while I was still, uh, you know, teaching, teaching full time. And so I, I wrote most of it in the summer. And what I would, I actually did was I tried to grab research materials. So I did interviews and I was pretty disciplined during the school year. I was pretty disciplined about going, okay, if I do an interview, I'm going to transcribe it the next day. And how I would do that typically is like, you know, I would, I would budget that and I, you know, it would do a 30 minute interview and it'd probably take an hour to transcribe. And so like I do it late at night, record it the next day. I, you know, in between classes, I'd sit in my office, office hours, you know, how that is like, you know, 80% of the time, nobody shows up and you just, you know, you kind of blow through it and sort of collected all this stuff and then like kind of got geared up for like, okay, May 15th finals are in, let's go and write and just protect that the time I understand maybe you have to teach in the summer and stuff like that, but you know, whatever it is, like your days, like Thursdays, Fridays, I'm writing, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I teach Monday, Wednesday in the summer. I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, write. And then, uh, you know, the other thing is that I would say is that is to just try to, I would, you know, especially as academics, I would say if you can, if there's something that is going to be, part of your portfolio for tenure for research. I mean, really try to do that article for like, be use the idea, you know, this is nothing revolutionary, but use that, write an article and then use it towards building towards a, and towards a book. Um, you know, that's what I would really, I would really say about my, you know, my cohort from graduate school, the guys who kind of did the battle, got, you know, woman and man who did the best were the people who could, 
who did that well, like, you know, basically had the two articles out of the dissertation and did that. But, um, you know, because for me too, I'd say the, the big sense of, of satisfaction early on is like, oh, I've written a chapter. Like I have a chapter of this book written, you know, I've done something like, you know, you start, you start somewhere, like don't start with page one necessarily. Maybe you start with page 100. You start right, right at the middle of it first, but you write something and it's sort of a sense of like, okay, I have something to build upon. And I think that's what ends up happening too with a lot of writing is that you end up with this big mass of stuff and you do have that, but to at least go, okay, I'm going to focus on this one piece, forget all this other crap. I'm going to focus on this one chunk of it, write a chapter out of this. And then you're like, okay, then I can build the next chapter from that. Go continue the story or continue the part, you know, the next part of the book. Um, that for me was, you know, and then you can use that for an article for a journal or something or whatever, like whatever publication you, you want, but uh, find a topic that inspires you too. I think that's, you know, people was I wrote this, um, you know, you wrote all this, you know, did all these interviews. It's like, well, I, I love Van, <laughs> I love a lot of things, but I love Van Halen. So it was like, you know, probably I could have written a book about guns and roses or like whatever. I mean, I could, um, I could think of a whole bunch of other things that I have a passion for, but you know, if it's a topic particularly that you have a passion for, you know, you'll be inspired to write it. Um, I think that's that's the other thing too is that that kind of makes it um, I don't want to say self-propelling, but it sort of it provides that impetus because you want to learn more. I want you know when I hear this stuff, I wanted to learn more. You know, and like you guys understand that from research, but I think especially if you get something you feel really, um, really, really inspired about, that's going to be because you know we all written articles I'm sure for different things like you know, and you're just sort of like eh, this is whatever interesting to me, but I'm not super interested in it that's not gonna, it's gonna be difficult to get to a book and finished unless you're like getting paid a million dollars to do a book or something like that, which is obviously, by the way, it's, it's not a get rich quick scheme, by the way, guys, just say, I mean, it is for some people, but you know, it's just sort of, that's the deal. Now I was gonna ask, as far as a historical method, is it tr trickier? Do you have any tips for writing in the, sort of the near history? Uh, you know, plenty of academics are writing right. about thir 13th century French cooking. Right. And you're, because I know one of our friends, Jeff Woods, he, he's writing about um, Vietnam pacification efforts. Right. And, you know, he's doing a lot of interviews and it's that same thing. But there's, it, it seems different the closer you get to, the you know, right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you try to write, I don't think historians are particularly good at assessing the present. That happens all the time we see that more and more now where historians sort of speak out about these things and just in general, like you're sort of like, well, do we really know what the effects of, you know, the long-term effects of Katrina are going to be one year after Katrina. We know Katrina was terrible, but sort of like, we, you know, it, it, you guys understand my point. It can sort of like, by, by obviously you can look at something and go, it's kind of on its face. True. Katrina was terrible. It transformed new Orleans, but to sort of, you know, it's kind of hard to have that, like you said, that pers perspective. And so, um, you know, that was, that was, uh, for me, not a, a huge issue because really the book with the, with the, uh, with the Van Halen book, it, it basically wraps up in 1978. And so, you know, the second, the final pages of the book, the afterward, to kind of wrap up Van, the Van Halen story sort of, you know, uh, generically in some sort of way where it's just sort of like and there's all this stuff happened but to sort of reflect on the you know the legacy of the band was was probably you know in some ways more tenuous than trying to think about the stuff that happened a long time ago because you know you sort of say like, like now 
you know, it, it's kind of hard to say, well, will people care about Van Halen in 50 years? I don't, I don't know. You know, some people will. Um, will people care about Led Zeppelin in 50 years? It's, uh, you know, it's more than Taylor Swift. I don't know. But that, that's the sort of stuff where, yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's sort of hard to sort of make these big, broad, you can say, this is important, but to sort of say, this is going to be important 100 years from now, it's kind of hard to know. Yeah. Well, I think what happens with them is a, as a Van Halen fan, too many people, when they think about the soap opera, they don't realize this was probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, one of the five biggest bands for 15 years. Sure. I mean, even with this change of lead singers, um, you know, all the way through, you know, right here, right now and stuff like that. I mean, this was a huge, you know, people don't sell albums of this volume anymore. They don't. So it's, um, that's what I was trying to remember. There's another academic who did some stuff on this. Um, is it Adam Dunn? I think is his name. He did. Um, he was a he was a Canadian anthropologist. Okay. And and he started off. Um, it, it, he has a documentary like head. Um, oh yeah. Heavy metal yeah. Like headbangers. Uh -huh. I know. I know exactly. What you mean. Yep. Now I know. Yep. But then it became like a ten part VH1. And now he's got his whole series. his own channel on like Banger TV. It's like this whole thing. Yeah. But he was, Metal Evolution. Yeah, yes, exactly. But if if yeah. you watch the early episodes, Van Halen steps in a lot of them. They yeah. are this bridge to get you out of. Um, basically, you've got the decline of. Well, I guess, yeah, Led Zeppelin was in decline. The you know the British guitar gods were having their problems, um, and they they came along and they kind of they they survived disco. They survived everything else. Right. Um, but it's the trouble is that legacy is kind of diminished by oh you guys can't get along who got right. fired whom you know on you know. well and that's the other thing too speaking of like writing history is you know um, there are different schools of historical writing you know you go to grad school and you learn about the Whig history and the progressive historians and these different you know different types of of, of schools of thought and uh, you know for me. My right my those political categories had nothing to do with the Van Halen Rising book. But for me, you know, I wanted to try to write a book that at the end of it, people would feel good. You know what I'm saying? It's like it doesn't mean if like if something bad happened, like about the Hindenburg, you should be like, oh, it was a happy thing that all these people burned up. But um, you know, there was so much you, you end up with all this negativity around something that was supposed to be fun and I you know I thought especially with the way I was going to write it which was I was going to end it at the moment of fame sort of sort of like the social network movie or uh, straight out of Compton where the book the basically the movie ends and that's the launch right you're like they're off to be famous or they're off to get rich um it doesn't have to be like this you know, thinking that you're like, I really don't like these guys. You know, and I, there, are, there are rock biographies I've read. Uh, they will remain nameless. They're written by artists who at the end of it, because they're so bitter, you're like, I just like this person. <laughs> and it's like, it's actually shocking to think about. Like, you're like, okay, you don't have to be like positive and happy about everything. But like, yeah, you might have gotten kicked out of a band. But you were in that band for a decade and you made millions of dollars. Yeah, you pissed the money away, but you were rich and everyone knows who you are and you're going to be on record. So we're going to, you know, what, I, you know what I mean? It's like, 
it doesn't have to be all just this negative vibe. And so that for me, it, it wasn't, it wasn't unnatural to write it like that. Cause I thought it was a positive story. Like these guys came out of nowhere and they broke through and they got famous. And you know what I'm saying? I think that's part of what, what I think about, you know, and the, the sort of the drug and the alcohol stuff, which again, isn't really related to a lot of writing, but just sort of all that stuff that's sort of like played out. It's just like in any genre. I mean, I don't know. You guys might, if you guys are zombie books or whatever, I'm sure there's like stuff you're like, Oh, this is so played out. Please stop with this cliche or this, like, we know they did drugs. You know, we can talk about, it, but does it have to be like, we know they, you know, had a lot of girls or it's like, just becomes like, it's like who cares? You know what I mean? It's like, who cares? And so that's the other thing too. It's just knowing, where it sort of jumped the shark and reached a saturation point with certain things that are sort of common to certain genres. I mean, you know, you can do it like probably books about the NFL or things where it's just sort of for a while you're just like, really? I'm talking about, you know, I know this. I, it's like a given. It's like, you know, it's like NFL players make bad decisions off the field. Okay, we kind of know that. I mean, if you're writing a book about that, that's one thing, but it's sort of like, I don't know how to explain it. It just becomes kind of a parody after a while. We were like, and I know what's going to happen and it's more of this. So, you know, that was sort of my, my take was that I wanted to read, I wanted to read a book and write a book about a band that I liked that even if there was negative stuff that went on inside the band that he didn't go away going, I really don't like these guys. This guy's kind of shitty to this guy. And this guy, you know, this guy is really a, you know, kind of a jerk. And why is this guy so greedy? It's just, <laughs> yeah, that's that's an. I was gonna say I get off my soapbox, but that's basically the job of this podcast is to be on the soapbox, right? So, so no, no, no apologies. No. But I've thought about. Go ahead, Chris. Just for uh, I think you hinted at it earlier. For these guys to make it to be successful, they have to have that kind. They have to be big, strong, powerful personalities. Definitely. You know, you you're gonna you know if you look at all the bands who've had personnel issues, you look at you know Guns N' Roses, Kiss. You you start putting all those big Rolling Stones. Yeah, there's there's going to be tension and firings and. You know, the Eagles, um, all those sort of groups, you know, the only way you make it is if you are really big, really dedicated. And, you know, you start putting a lot of those big personalities in the same room, you're going to have clashes. Yeah. And I think it's, even and like you're hinting at, like, to, and to keep it going, you know, Al, you have to have musical talent, but you also have to have that drive to keep going. There's so many bands that just, they fall apart and, you know, in part because people just don't have that innate sort of survival mode drive to keep to keep going mm-hmm. um yeah i mean the eagles are a classic example i mean where you can you know you can look at all the interpersonal clashes and think this is sad that it got to be like that but on the other hand it's like the fact that the songs are so great and they you know they made all these great albums there's i guess what i'm saying in terms of narrative there's ways to sort of be honest with the story but you can also prevent and present a, a story to your reader that doesn't turn people against the, the people i mean you know it's like you can focus on the positive like well you know the eagles some of these guys were not really great to each other and there was some really messed up stuff that went on but god damn they made some great albums and they, they had a lot of success and uh you know their their songs are going to be going to be uh you know i'm sure people are going to listen to the eagles 100 years from now and that's just a given i mean i think so uh you know that's there's always the, the choices you can make in terms of of a narrative and how you want to present a present a story. Uh, 
you know, I remember reading this review, this one book about the police where the, the, the reviewer was like, I don't think the person really likes Sting at all. And it's like, you don't have to like necessarily like the guy, but it's like, <laughs> you read a book and be like, God, I really hate Sting now. And it's, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's just like you're like going for some sort of like salacious, like tell all, like gossipy thing where you're like, you don't care whether you tear the person down or not. I don't know. It's just, especially being writing it from a standpoint of, I don't know those guys. I've never met those guys. Uh, I've talked to Michael Anthony, the bass player on the phone. That's it. I, uh, you know, I don't even know if those guys read the book. I know why well, I know Michael Anthony's read the book, but the other guys, I have no idea if they've even read the book or not. So the sort of like, you know, this sort of idea of, of uh, you know, kind of people, I don't know, biographers kind of doing these stories and it's sort of really, I don't know, you just have to be, I always figured you wanted to be thinking. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's stuff I didn't print in the book that I was told that was probably true. That um, you're thinking, you know what? It's well, not relevant. relevant to your it's story, not relevant, right? right? It's not relevant. And so uh, you know, and that's the other thing too. It's just it's uh, it's you want to think about again, leaving the reader coming away. I did with like a sense of like the core of the story was guys who didn't seem like they would ever be able to work together, work together guys who played a type of music which wasn't in sync at all with the music of the time stuck it out guys who got offered a got they thought they had a record deal through gene simmons the most famous musician in the world in 1976 which collapsed on them stayed together signed and signed with warner brothers made a record that really a lot of people in warner brothers didn't think was going to do all that well and they ended up selling mm -hmm. two million copies and becoming superstars to me that was the core part of the story rather than yeah. any of the other sort of extraneous uh, BS. Are there, are there any other, uh, without you giving away, uh, you know, thesis statements here, are there any other uh, like sort of un untapped uh, areas of the band's history that, that you're interested in or that you think oh, haven't Oh, yeah. Been? Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think there are, I think the, the breakup in 1995, which there was obviously a lot of ugly stuff that went on, excuse me, 95, 85, sorry, that went around with that. To me, it's so interesting how the band fell apart, reform, you know, you formed it with the Sammy Hagar, and then there were two bands basically competing with each other. And I always thought that was a super interesting time. And then when you look at particularly how it all ended up working out that by the early nineties, David Lee Ross career had really started to take a nosedive. He really was slipping to the point where by 1991, really he was kind of um, had fallen to where he was playing smaller arenas at best and had to cancel a tour where Van Halen continued on until even until Hagar left, um, you know, they kind of won that battle. So that whole, that whole period of time is really interesting to me. Um, but the, you know there are other bands I I I would definitely consider consider writing about um, as well. And there's actually topics I'm interested in that aren't even music related. But that that you know I think in, in part because I experienced it as a kid the breakup. Uh, <laughs> everybody you know, it's did. like Chris Chris did yeah everybody yeah. did like you're sort of like you live through it. It's like uh, you, you know it's uh, you know it would be like. Uh, if you're a, a Red Sox fan talking about the ball through going through Bill Buckner's legs or something like that, it's like, everyone remembers like, how could this have happened? This wasn't supposed to happen this way. And, you know, for me, that's, what's interesting too, because I, I look back on it. I don't even, you know, it, it was still so, sh 
it's still so shocking to me that actually ended up happening. And then I don't really think, even though there's been a ton of, I don't know, you know, art magazine articles that have kind of touched on it. I don't ever think because the Van Halen brothers have never done a book and I don't really know if we can tr- totally trust Sammy Hagar's perspective. He's got his one perspective. Ross got a perspective, obviously they're biased. Uh, so, you know, you don't really get like, I, the, I would like to get more of like the 10,000 foot view about what actually like happened. Cause I'm not even sure those guys know, cause you know, they can say they know, but they just sort of like had their sort of like very tunnel vision, understandably. So perspective on this, this thing. So, but they're, uh, yeah. I would say part of it too, is that you hit on this, um, is the, the grind cycle these guys would have been on, you know, it's, you crank out an album, you go on tour for nine months, you barely come off the road, repeat. I mean, they effectively did that from 78 to 85, you know, so you're- Yeah, the rec- right. You know, I've always, the, go ahead. No, I was sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just gonna say really quickly, yeah, that was basically the record company set it up that way. Weren't, you know, it's like, you, it was basically an album a year you were supposed to deliver. And so you figured out, you know, the album comes out, you go on the road, guess what? You owe them another record, so. Yeah. I think that was the one thing um, when they came, you know, they just became the biggest band. They've sold a million albums. They come off the road. Warner Brothers, great. You owe us a million dollars. Right. Um, and it's why, if you look at the liner notes in their first albums, Brian, a lot of the early Van Halen albums are recorded in insanely short periods of time. Um, they basically, they write it, they played it on stage. I think Van Halen 2 was like six days. And I quick, think yeah. Women and Children First was three weeks. Because it was that was all the time you had to get off the road. Because you're you know at that point you're costing your record deal uh, company money. But I think when you do that from effectively like you said late '77 until um, '85, that's that's going to take a toll on people. Yeah, and man, that's just all. What they, and that's become you know with digital music. That's something that uh, you know artists. Uh, getting compensated and, and like because it seems like like bands like panic they bought all of their uh records like at a certain point in their career oh they bought back their masters they yes right and so now they they own all their own music they own the rights to all their own music so they're not under a label or anything but they're still playing you know real really big shows i mean sold out shows for wherever they want to go mm-hmm. i saw them play uh at the ryman a sold out show in nashville uh last year which is really cool Mm -hmm. but uh yeah that's a fascinating topic in and of itself is like the record the record labels involvement and then like how certain bands have just uh like tools man they they cashed in on the digital shift but i got one uh, a bubble it was crazy one that i thought was interesting that was you know the last couple chap you know last maybe two chapters of the book i went pretty quickly on because that way they've got the first album out. But sure. I think one of the things that I found really interesting when you were talking about how Warner Brothers basically t- went from Black Sabbath was their kind of moneymaker, and then all of a sudden, hey, it's these new guys from California. Um, and you, there was, it'd be an interesting like vignette of Warner Brothers basically, you know, saying thanks to Black Sabbath, you're, you know, your yesterday's news. Right. But it's, I'm laughing because there's I have this I have a a, a video file of a a biography channel uh, biography on Black Sabbath, which I don't think I don't think is available on TV anymore. It was made like 10, 15 years ago. But like Geezer Butler, this is great. The Geezer Butler, the bass player, I may have quoted him in the book. Um, 
said like that Van. <laughs> I'm laughing. So they like, you know, Black Sabbath was like, yeah, one of the premier acts on Warner Brothers. And so Warner Brothers now has Van Halen opening for Black Sabbath. And like there was a party to celebrate, like, I don't know, like the 10th anniversary of Black Sabbath, or like, I don't know, the 10th anniversary of Black Sabbath or something. I don't remember. And like, I guess like Van Halen showed up at the party of the Warner Brothers guys. Like, <laughs> it's like a party for Black Sabbath. It's like, oh, here's our new guy, David Lee Roth. And like those guys were just like, holy shit. Like, it's yeah and you know the, the, you can look in the 90s where um you know a lot of the the glam metal bands kind of saw the the turning of the tide too were like oh you know what uh see you later whatever warrant cinderella all these other bands that had been kind of the cash cows for these labels it's like you know hey nirvana's here you know it's the same type of same type of thing but yeah the turning the changing of the guard is really interesting um you know and the other thing too is that I talk about it in the Van Halen book and I talk about it more in the Ted Templeman biography is that, um, you know, Ted Templeman, who was their producer told me that one of the things that almost always happened when a band like Van Halen got a record deal, they wrote their own songs. The label offered to buy the publishing. Now I should, I should preface this by saying I'm not like a lawyerly expert on royalties and all these things, but basically if you own, your song publishing, sheet music, when the records are played on the radio, there's always a sort of getting money, but the publishing, which means the songwriting is super valuable. So if you look at any Van Halen record, it says Van Halen music. And uh, it turns out that like Ted was, Ted, their producer said, I look, I shouldn't be doing this, but they're gonna offer to buy your publishing. Do not sell your publishing because that's the kind of the, the key thing that long-term, even if your band has flopped, if your music gets used for TV or radio or it gets whatever, like you still have that in that, what are you kind of that mailbox money from songwriting? And uh, yeah, they held on to that smartly. Those guys held on to that. So even if they were $1.2 million in debt to the record company, which is all the money, the record company, like every time they got a limo, oh, yeah, we're running a limo. Cha-ching, Warner Brothers is charging. Oh yeah, let's order all the takeout. You know, on the, on the menu, the uh, room service menu, everything, you know, we're partying. And like, that was all, all that stuff was charged to the, to the record company. And I get that's part of the, was the way the record company kept people, no doubt, kept those guys working. You sell these records, you sell all this money, but that was, that was a separate, you know, that was a separate deal. That's the, the, the songs you wrote, that money comes, that's not involved with the record quote unquote company. That's directly involved with the, the, the songwriter. And so, um, yeah, if if, uh, if uh, people, those guys, it's widespread panic if they own their publishing and they own their masters, they must be in pretty good, you know, for what it's worth, they must be in pretty good shape better than some, I'm sure you guys have seen like Kanye kind of ranting on Twitter about how like, you know, I don't know, he doesn't own his masters. Um, I'm not gonna feel better, bad for Kanye's financial situation, but I, you know, that you, when the label owns, owns, the, owns the albums, the songs, I mean, they control, ultimately they can veto like, oh, we're not doing this, we're doing that with the, with the music and they, and they decide um, they basically have veto power over the, of the, of the way the songs can sign up exist in the world. Now did Ted Templeton stay with Van Halen into the Hagar years as the produ uh, album producer? He, uh, well, yeah, it's funny you asked that question. He, um, he did not produce 5150. He produced the six albums with Roth and then he produced Roth's EP Crazy from the Heat, and he produced the uh, next record, which is called Eat Him and Smile with Roth. So he, 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 in effect, went with Roth, even though if you read the book, anyone who reads the book will kind of see that mm -hmm. Ted sort of talks about how that all 
you know, it wasn't as if he's, as he said, he had sort of a willful choice to go with, with uh, Dave. He didn't want the band to break up at all, but that's how it went down. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew that, that um, there was a little bit of tensions. You could see that um, you first saw the album was called Diver Down. Um, basically it's a full length album, but it's got five or six covers on it. Right. Um, it was, the, they got away from like that sort of, you know, dirty, the, they called the brown tone a little bit. Um, so you started to see, you know, artistic differences start to appear a little bit. So I was curious, you know, if I, I didn't really, I don't remember um, if Templeton came back and did any, any of the later Van Halen albums, you know. He never did any of the, the, uh, the records with Hagar until the 1991 record, the Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge record. Mm -hmm. He co-produced that. He was brought back to co-produce that. But the ones that they did, the 5150, OUA12, uh, those were all done without Ted. Okay. So, uh, Greg, both your uh, Van Halen Rising and your uh, biography about Ted are on Audible, I see, uh, right. which I just became aware of since we're on the podcast. So I've done 70 Audible books this year. So wow. I will, I will get around to them. I'm, wow. I'm, my, my goal is to do 100. So... Um, Give but yeah, I'll, I'll check them out. That's Thank awesome. you. That would be great. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. I'll, yeah. I'll link I them up when I share the episode. Thanks, yeah. I, I've never listened to them because it's too weird to hear some guy I don't know reading my book. It's just, there's <laughs> no offense to the guy or anything. Or my, it's just like weird. It's just like, I don't know how to explain it. It's just weird. So, but yeah, I, I uh, appreciate that very much. Yeah, the audio book and then there's, uh, there's Kindle books yeah, as well. A, that's how I got it um, when it came out. Kindle and physical Kindle. copy also on sure. Kindle. Yeah. yeah. Well, just like most academics, I have a health, an overly healthy library. Yeah, exactly. That's the uh, the uh, the books that I uh, I have on the Kindle. I am always appreciative when I'm on an airplane or something like that. Definitely. Yeah, I got signed up for Kindle, but like I I need to get. Uh, I'll have to get with you, Chris, because I haven't. I've never used it. Uh, mm -hmm. I, but there's a couple Arkansas history books that I wanted for my class. I couldn't get anywhere else. Um, mm -hmm. so, but I mean, I know, I know so many people that do it, but I've just all, I've just been on audible, honestly. So, yeah. It's another suck you in. Uh, if you've got Amazon prime, they'll offer you, what is it? Kindle unlimited. I think I signed up for, it. I just never used it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for your another $39 or however much I, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing that's interesting is that Kindle can make, in theory, can make a book disappear off your device. It's like, oh, you, you know, whatever. I, you know, I, I think they didn't. There's a couple of books that were withdrawn by the publisher, and it's like, you know, basically you buy a book and it gets withdrawn by the publisher, and you have it on your shelf, but they're not going to come take it out of your house. But like, you know, Kindle can be like make it disappear off your device, which is kind of. So you know, we're living in a digital age. What can I say? It's a weird thing, but yeah, it's uh, definitely convenient. Yeah. Well, hell yeah, man. Well, dude, this has been a great, uh, great topic, uh, Greg, a great conversation. Uh, it, all about a lot of awesome stuff, man. Black Oak, Arkansas, at Tulsa. Uh, what is, man, what is my favorite Irish pub? Kilkenny's. I go eat there every time I'm in town. I, I, I can walk there from here. So. Oh, hell yeah. So guys, oh, yeah. definitely call me or email me when you guys are coming to town for sure. And uh, drag for Trey sure. along with you because I'd love to see him again. He's a He's a, a good dude. Tell him I said hi. 
for sure, man. I will. I will. I plan on, I want to have him on the podcast soon. So uh, I just, I was joking. I was like, man, people at work will watch it. We don't who's who's trying to, to who's, who who's wants to be added to the meeting? Oh, it's Greg. Oh, by the way, I just, I just realized my kids' names are on my, my screen, by the way. There you go. That's how fast I switched over. So, hey, I appreciate it very much, guys. Thanks for having me on and uh, enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. All right, man. Have a good one. Take it you easy. You too. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. You too.